0: Welcome back to the SPRC podcast. My name is Gala Rexa. I'm a postdoctoral research fellow at the SPRC, and today I'm delighted to welcome Maya Migdashi on the podcast. Maya Migdashi is an associate professor in the Department of Women's, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Rutgers University, and we're here today to speak about her first book, Sextarianism, Sovereignty, Secularism, and the State in Lebanon, which has been published with Stanford University Press in 2022. It theorizes the relationship between sexual difference and political difference, the religious and the secular, and law, bureaucracy, and biopower. Maya has been also published in several field-defining journals, such as, for example, International Journal of Middle East Studies, Gay and Lesbian Quarterly, Transgender Studies Quarterly, or the Journal of Palestine Studies. She's also a co founding editor of Jadalia. Thanks so much for joining me, Maya.
1: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation with
0: you. So I noticed throughout reading the book that you often use the image of a knot to describe how things are tied together or how they are co-produced. For instance, in the introduction, you're asking, "Quote: what can we learn about the ways that secular power and one of its manifestations, citizenship, is practiced at this knot of religion, sect, and sect? And while I was reading the book, I also felt like I was untying a knot that was made out of different materialities, such as legal anthropology, queer theory, women's studies, anthropology of the law, Middle East studies, and maybe more. So I was wondering, to begin with, if you could talk a little bit about how you were weaving these disciplines together, and how they shape the book, and also how this approach maybe can help us more broadly to think about state power.
1: I think, you know, any book is kind of a reflection of the author, the conversations they're having, what they're reading, what they're teaching,
0: and, you know,
1: also just kind of what world that they're in. I think you definitely identified the major three fields that animate the book. Anthropology, which was my PhD training and is my sort of methodological approach to academic work. Women and Gender Studies, Queer Theory, Sexuality Studies, Feminist Theory, which is where I work now. I work in this field and it definitely is a field that I'm very glad that I found and it's really sort of invigorated my thinking over the past decade or so. And finally, Middle East Studies, which I've been working in also for a very long time now and I have an MA degree in. And I think part of what I try to do in this book is to take all three fields seriously and to put them into conversation in a way that doesn't try to make hierarchies between them, but to also open up pathways of conversation. Because I haven't really seen texts that take each field seriously on their own and try to not only sort of create threads, but identify the places where those threads fall apart in between them. And that can mean things even in terms of the claims you're making, different approaches to similar topics or subjects, you know, different theoretical strengths in different fields, or at least what I find interesting. But also doing it in terms of a citational politics and practice, where I am drawing on all the people, all the work that informs my work. And they are primarily in these three fields. And I'm sure you know, for example, Middle East studies and gender studies are both interdisciplinary fields. Of course, Middle East studies, in my opinion, is more multidisciplinary in some way than than interdisciplinary. And I try to present it in an interdisciplinary way in this book. And it heavily emerges from historians, political scientists. So having these two sort of interdisciplinary fields really talk to each other and identify how they've sort of parted ways in some way on subjects like sexual difference, securitization. And at the same time, I think anthropology is just sort of the way that I am able to think about experiences of power, what it feels like to experience different forms of power and to live through these different practices of the state. And here, I would say, I think having this field be in a very convivial conversation is also tied to the politics of location in some ways, and insisting on a place like Lebanon to be a launching pad of generating such a conversation that's both theoretical and methodological. And I like that you picked up on the not, the recurring word of the not in the book, And the way I sort of think about it and how I try to present it in the book is that if you pursue a knot before they become discrete categories, right, before they get sort of disambiguated, stabilized, securitized, you get to see in many ways how the categories we use themselves are constantly changing, will change and are always in flux and in process and are always the results of a kind of disciplinary power that is both geopolitical but also epistemological, and the sort of relations between the geopolitical and the epistemological there. Obviously here I'm thinking about how the categories of our knowledge themselves change and what will happen if we try not to assume what we're going to find when we start our research which is an approach I think I've taken from anthropology mostly. But also I've been thinking about this more because I had to write something for a journal this past few weeks, which is sort of how geopolitics are not only the setting of our work, but are the conditions of our work. So, for example, I'm sure you know, given your own placement in different fields, that there's been kind of a resurgence of work on Lebanon from different disciplines. And part of that is just the geopolitical conditions of the Middle East, where it's just so much more difficult and dangerous to go to places like Iraq, Syria, Egypt, Palestine. And of course, Palestine has never been open to so a huge group of researchers. So, you know, geopolitics is not just a setting, it's, a, it's an active sort of shape. How we do our work, what is possible? and even the location of
0: theory. I think that really relates to a question that I actually wanted to ask you later, but it's a perfect pathway (laughs) and I cannot not take it, which is the question of locality. So where do we think state power, citizenship, or sovereignty from, I guess, is one of the animating questions of your book, and it really makes the case of thinking it from Lebanon. But also earlier in your work, for instance, in an article that you wrote with just Poor, you reference the transnational Middle East, and you really ask how does queer theory sit within area studies or within Middle East studies? So can you talk a little bit more about working from these theoretical peripheries or from different locations and how that enriches our world and thinking, writing and methodology, I guess?
1: Yeah, thanks for this question. I mean, part of what we were saying in that article is not just sort of the relation between queer theory and area studies, but really kind of identifying queer theory as a form of area studies, as a sort of uncoded, geographically bound also, for the most part. Of course, it's leaky for the most part, body of theory. And then part of that is the sort of geopolitics of place itself. What places get to stand in for the world? And what places are only places, right? <laughs> so what peripheries are the world? And what peripheries are always going to be periphery? And I think that definitely in this book, in sectarianism, I wanted to, you know, do away with that idea and do away with it confidently. Like, I'm not trying to make a case, right? Like, please pay attention to these parts of the world where we are creating theory. I'm just saying this is what the world looks like when thought through this location and taking this location seriously in terms of its politics, its history, its texture, and the knowledge that has been created about this space. So insofar as, for example, if you think the world from Lebanon, I think the question of the state is obviously, you know, sounds a little bit different from a place that has been in civil war for most of its history, civil wars or wars with Israel for most of its history. Sounds different, the question of citizenship, when asked from Lebanon really forces us to think about ways of making and unmaking citizenship, the relationship between refugees and citizens and undocumented people and migrant labor, and how political systems kind of get fueled in many ways by demographic anxieties. And I know this is something that we share, this concern or this interest in demographic anxieties that are often spurred up by things like sex panic. So, for example, if you think about biopolitics, securitization, the making of national difference, and demographic anxiety from a location like Lebanon, part of what we have to pay attention to is how different gets made from sameness or from similarity. So if you think about 1948 as this moment where Palestinians are ethnically cleansed from what becomes the state of Israel and occupied Palestine into Lebanon, in 1948, what is the difference between Lebanese and Palestinians? Lebanon has been created in 1943, and it's precisely the similarity of populations that can produce violence as a way of making difference. And then obviously, this is then repeated on a much larger scale with the war in Syria and the arrival of Syrian refugees to Lebanon, where today, you know, the ratio is for every three citizens is one refugee living in Lebanon, and some studies say actually the ratio is larger. Closer to one to every 2.5, or 2.5 to every one. And I think if you ask these kinds of questions from these kinds of locations, you start to see a different texture in terms of how we think about violence, nationalism, difference, political difference, sexual difference, precisely because, you know, we're not talking about Syrians arriving into Germany. We're not. We're talking about families that had been split by borders returning in many ways, different branches of different families. So definitely, I think, where we ask these questions about our world today, precisely because it is a world with increasing movements from all the sort of different collapses that are happening and calamities all around us, it makes a lot more sense, to be honest, to ask this question from a location like Lebanon than to ask it from France at least in the contemporary moment.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think you really do show that in the book. I was thinking maybe we take a step back for those who haven't read it yet and talk about the term that you're proposing, which is sectarianism. So what does it do as a concept in tying together sex, sect, and state power? The
1: term really kind of emerges from a long genealogy of feminist theory Feminist political theory about sexual and political difference and how they are co-produced and at the same time separated within different political ideologies, such as liberalism, right? Like the genesis of the liberal social contract theory, for example, you know, back to Carol Payton's foundational work on this issue. So, you know, the term sort of emerges from this kind of engagement, but then also is grounded in and kind of a winking reality of an overly determinative conversation on sectarianism that happens in our location and the transnational Middle East, but also just in other locations of the global south. And here I'm thinking about sectarianism very broadly as a term, not only in its religious definition, but as forms of difference that are highly affective and rigid, or at least that's how the literature points to it, right? So it could be tribalism, sectarianism, ethnic difference, and importantly, how political difference really becomes sharpened around the question of sex and sexuality. So if our world is sort of increasingly sectarian, and it's increasingly sectarian in how we define our politics, and how even within different nation states, people define their politics against each other based on questions of sex, based on questions of gender, and the temperature of the conversation is awfully hot. It tries to then, I think this is a sort of global phenomena that is trying, what I was trying to do is offer a term that allows for us to both think about the genesis of political and sexual difference and how they're co-constituted, but also how they're deployed, how they're deployed ideologically, that relationship, how it gets deployed politically, ideologically, discursively. And in practice, in daily practice, and here again, I think the difference Lebanon makes is that it's like on steroids, right? It's such an intense example of this relationship of political and sexual difference and the deployment of sex as a discourse of politics and as the sort of articulation of different political discourses through this question of sexual difference, whether it's about things like birth patterns or it's things like a sort of moral national architecture of nationhood. So the term tries to work at multiple scales, the sort of bureaucratic, structural, ideological, and the practical embodied.
0: That's another perfect pathway to talk about methodology a bit more, because I think what I enjoyed most while reading the book and sort of what also was my biggest takeaway as a scholar, as a writer, was to pay attention to the multi-layered arguments that you make about fieldwork, about doing archival work, about what it means to be in an archive, but also what it means to be with the documents, with the people who work there and what sort of relations unfold in that process. And you're suggesting in the book a research and writing practice that centers not the archival object itself, but the assemblage that makes that thing. So the processes, the materialities, the histories that kind of make the thing that we study. And I think that opens up analytically to include speculation or opacity and indeed effect into the analysis. And I wanted to talk a bit about chapter two, a fire in the archive, where you describe your own effective reaction to receiving a file that describes war crimes of a militia leader and how you didn't want to read it. And then later in the chapter, or actually at the end of the chapter, you reflect how that file was handed to you. It was indeed thrown to you on the floor by the archivist that you were working with. And I guess many years later in writing the book, you're speculating about why she threw it on the floor. You're speculating about her motives in that particular moment. So I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about indeterminacy as a method as it is present throughout your work.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is in some ways tied to what we've been talking about, like knots and categories and, you know, what comes to the fore when we ask the same questions from different locations, right? What different texture and location brings. And part of what I try to argue in the book Specifically, and I think it comes out in this chapter most strongly, is that we should be open to our own investment in meaning and truth and fixing truth and meaning. And also sit with the fact that we will probably never know. We are not sovereign over knowledge production in some ways. You know, and I had a totally different project before I entered the archive. I was doing something totally different. And then when I asked people, what do you think is important? They started sharing these files with me, which is how I really started to think about sectarianism as a concept, as in seeing how just impossible it was to disaggregate political difference from sexual difference bureaucratically and legally. So part of what I'm trying to say in that passage that you sort of pointed to is that especially when there is such a strong seduction to meaning, right? that last sort of scene is sort of begging to be read in a particular way, right? which I point to, and I think this would be the kind of standard way of reading it. But also, here's many other ways of reading it, and they all contain each other, and I will never know, and I accept in some ways that I will never know. And it's much more interesting intellectually to dwell in the question than to provide an answer, for me at least. And I think that's an honest way of depicting what we do in research.
0: While I was reading the book, I also felt that there was a term or a notion or a concept that was really present throughout the whole book, but it wasn't addressed on an analytical level. And that's the term of intimacy or intimacies. And I found that it structured the book in your own way of approaching the archive, your careful graphic analysis, and that always refers to positionality and your locality in these histories and archives. And also it's present in the ways in which bureaucracy and the state manage people's lives in a biopolitical way and how it indeed structures what they can do and what they cannot do and what kind of questions they ask of the state and of the courts. And thirdly, I think what you refer to as violent intimacies, especially in Chapter 5, where you talk about hymen and anal exams conducted by the state or state-adjacent actors. So what role would you say does intimacy play in sectarianism as a theory and also as a method or methodology? Uh, That's a good question. It's
1: interesting that you picked up on it because it's definitely a thread that I don't really dedicate enough time to, maybe. You know, at the outset, I would just say the term "violent intimacies is actually taken from the work of Asla Zengin, who is a, also ethnographer of violence and of the state. And in her work, it's very much about how the state touches you and this relation of violence through intimacy in many ways and how intimacy itself is incredibly violent. I'm very much in conversation with that work and inspired by it. And I started thinking about it in terms of the experience of the state and how the structuring of intimacy into bureaucratic and legal regimes, but also the structuring of intimacy as a place of regulation and of hypersecuritization, is an extremely violent process, and it's a violent experience, and it's an experience that we all share. I think is an important thing to state here. If we share one thing about the experience of the state, it's in many ways how it structures and inflects intimacy and intimate relations and what we mean by that term. And of course, intimacy itself operates on multiple scales. So when it comes to the question of the intimacy in the work itself or intimacy as a way of being reflective about research, What I found the most interesting here is that the intimacy that I had with a lot of my interlocutors ended up that we could fight a lot. And we did. And I tried to sort of show that in the text, right? These are not experiences where I'm going in and I'm analyzing what people are saying to me, right? And I'm coming up with some kind of tidy theory, like, this is what they actually mean. This is not a question of false consciousness where the academic comes in and translates everyday life. People are the sort of biggest, greatest theorists of their own lives. And part of that intimacy is the ability to argue and to argue with a smile in some ways, right? And I try to show that particularly in the chapter on the archive. But also there, I'm very careful, and I think this is linked in some ways to the last chapter and the chapter on religious conversion, to not mistake positionality for identification or for the ability to decide oneself. Positionality is not something that the author gets to sort of state in a sovereign way. This is my position. This is who I am in this space. Because you never determine, you're not the person actually determining what you are in social space. Definitely, like I could stand in front of the mirror and say, my name is Maya McDashie. This is who I am. This is my identity. This is what matters to me. But when you enter into a social space, all of that becomes flux. And positionality is something that is always changing and you're never sovereign over. And intimacy is one of the ways and making intimacy is one of the ways that you get positioned in a particular social field. And that was definitely true in my archival work. But it was also true when I was doing the work on religious conversion, where obviously identification, what a state identifies you as, is not necessarily what you identify yourself as. And everybody kind of understands this misrecognition. Nobody assumes that it does have to be like this sort of visceral. And I think that that kind of winking perspective on these kinds of relations. I do take from a lot of the work in queer theory and gender studies and just my own sort of lived experience of the state and of identification.
0: Yeah, maybe we can continue to talk a little bit about the state, because in the last chapter, you proposed the term of the epidermal state and how it relates to the body to further theorize how states materialize bodies, but also shape them. And on the other hand, how sovereignty and violence is produced and felt on a bodily level. And specifically, you're looking, as I mentioned, on the practice of Hyman and Aina's exams to determine differently gendered sexual activity. But I wanted to talk first a bit about the term itself, because it's really interesting you're mentioning Fanon and Povinelli as sort of the parents, I guess, of this term, but also Bridotti in the way in which you think about the body itself. So could you explain a bit more how you came to that term in conversation awesome. with these authors?
1: Well, this is partly about intellectual genealogy. Beth Pavanelli was my graduate advisor, one of the chairs of my dissertation. The other was Nadia Abulhaj. So, you know, I'm very familiar with her work and I was very inspired. And she sort of introduced me to fields of legal anthropology and different ways of thinking about law. And there's also a different genealogy here of sort of politics of location and of historical processes where, you know, Fano and Pozzinelli are talking to each other, but they're also talking about different things, right? They're <laughs> also talking about, in some ways, and these different things are related to different colonial projects and the forms of violence that these colonial projects unleash not only physically, but epistemologically, even in terms of our understanding of what the world is and what the body is in the world and what the relation of the body to the world is. I will say that as important to me, and just as importantly as Fano and Pavanelli are in shaping this, the image of bruised bodies is just as influential to me. Here I'm thinking, particularly about you know, how I felt when I saw the images of Khalid Said circulating out of Egypt, and the way that the body became such a obvious target. And I say obvious, and it's always been a target, but at least in my own life, this is when I really started to see and feel the kind of violence unfolding at the skin all around me during this period of the uprising, but then recognizing this long genealogy of the body and violence and securitization and much of state power, actually really condensing on this point to make you a body, a body separate from other bodies, to determine the meaning of bodies. And here, thinking about gender, sex, sexuality, race, nationality. So in my own sort of path, I would say the war on terror, the uprising from Tunisia onwards, my own experiences in Lebanon of state violence and repression really are as, I think, shaping of my thinking of the epidermal state as theorists are, let's put it that way. And in addition to talking about the threshold of the body, in Salbonelli's terms, or the misrecognition of violence and race and identity and the psychology of misrecognition in some ways. It's just as important to think about the body as a space of contestation, of meaning, contesting meaning, what this part of your body means and doesn't mean. And again, here, the threshold is of the self, but it's also of self-sovereignty when you're really up against these sort of state apparatuses. And I think it's important here to just bring back the point that Part of why I wrote this chapter is because the conversation on sovereignty itself is so overdetermined, particularly in Lebanon, but also in places like Palestine and in many other locations in the Middle East. And that is that the understanding of sovereignty in Lebanon is just that it doesn't, you know, the Lebanese state is not sovereign, period. It's not sovereign. And it's not sovereign because it doesn't have hegemony over political violence. But then what is political violence? who gets to determine what political violence is and isn't, and just because a state doesn't have this kind of hegemony doesn't mean it's not incredibly violent, because if you ask the question from the location of vulnerability, if you ask a refugee in Lebanon, a Syrian refugee, is the Lebanese state violent? Is it sovereign in its violence over you? You will get an answer. And the echo here that I just want to mention, because it was incredibly important to me personally, but I think it's important to our world and to theorization of our world, is that the question of sovereignty pre- and post-invasion and occupation of Iraq is totally different. The stakes of being considered a failed state are not theoretical, and we have to sit with that. And that was very much part of how I was trying to think about epidermal sovereignty.
0: Yeah, I think a good way to end is when talking about sovereignty, how can we also talk about resilience or agency? These are obviously also complicated terms. But I felt when I was reading the book that there were also nods or like references to these practices. For example, in the ways in which you're describing how some interlocutors as well as people in court files refuse sectarian interpolation or how they play with it or how they use it strategically in all these different bureaucratic processes. And I don't know if it's agency, but it kind of especially appears in the ways in which you describe these people as opaque or maybe ambivalent in the face of the state. Mm -hmm. So to end the conversation, I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about the effective, agentive or opaque registers Mm -hmm. of everyday life. And if these are modes of disidentification or strategic identification that you're describing, sort of how you think about them.
1: To me, the notions of hypervisibility and opacity are very intimately connected, bureaucratically, legally, and ideologically. This kind of hypervisibility actually allows for a kind of opacity, both as a, as a state practice, right, which I describe as the state not really caring what you believe in, because it understands religion to be just a governmental, biopolitical, inherited category, right? not a category of like viscerality or belief. So it kind of allows for opacity in that way. And at the same time, this hyper-visibility of difference allows space. I don't know if I would call it agency, but play, play with categories. And of course, the ability to play is structured by, you know, the things we already know, class, gender, race, nationality, legal status. So in some ways, they are, to me, linked. The fact that these are hyper-securitized categories, sectarian categories, actually allows for play within them, because as long as you play by a script, people aren't asking you if you really believe it, as long as you know the script and you will say it in certain times. And that's sort of the image I think that you're referring to, sort of like, what if religious conversion was some kind of masquerade? where people know what they're doing and the state knows what they're doing and everyone's kind of turning to each other with a half-smile. But because we're all saying the script, we are performing the state. And that's actually what state power is. It's this performance that we're stabilizing, even in our just sort of recitation of a script with the knowledge that it doesn't have to be attached to particular forms of meaning all the time in every kind of instance. So I think the category of agency is a tricky one, especially maybe it was easier, you know, a year ago when I was finishing the book than today, given the what's happening in Lebanon. The question of agency, I think it takes on a slightly different register. And I'm more leaning towards using the word play.
0: Thank you. Yeah, that was super interesting. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thank you. Thank you for these questions. Thank you for listening. For more information about UCL Sarah Parker Roman Centre find us at ucl.ac.uk forward slash racism dash racialisation or follow us on twitter at ucl underscore sprc.